Immigration Advocates Network podcast. Welcome to the Immigration Advocates Network podcast series on special issues in naturalization and citizenship. Today's topic is naturalization for clients in military service. My name is Pat Malone, and I'm staff attorney at the Immigration Advocates Network. Our guest today is Margaret Stock. Welcome, Margaret. Thank you very much for inviting me. Margaret is an attorney at the law firm Lane and & Powell and an adjunct instructor at the University of Alaska. She focuses her practice on immigration and citizenship law, and as a retired lieutenant colonel in the military police, U.S. Army Reserve, Margaret has extensive experience with U.S. military issues. She is also a member of the American Bar Association Commission on Immigration. She has published articles on military-related immigration issues and has a book coming out soon. She's here today in her capacity as an expert on naturalization for people in the military. Margaret, to begin, what are the general requirements for naturalization? The general requirements for naturalization are that a person must have been a lawful permanent resident for somewhere between three and five years, depending on which category of the law they're naturalizing under. Uh, They have to pay a fee and file a form with the government, show that they have had continuous residency and a certain amount of minimum physical presence in the United States. They're also required to have a certain amount of time in the district or state in which they're filing. They cannot naturalize if they are in removal or deportation or exclusion proceedings. Um, And those are basically the general requirements. Now, for military personnel, some of those requirements are relaxed. Why don't you go ahead and tell us about the special rules or the relaxation of rules for people in the military? Right. Um, The special rules are a little bit complicated, but let me kind of give you the highlights. Uh, First, there are two separate statutes that govern military naturalizations. Now, before going into the details of them, I should mention that military personnel who have lawful permanent residence have the option of naturalizing under the regular civilian statutes, which lawyers would look at Immigration and Nationality Act Section 318 to, to take a look at those. Uh, and so military personnel and veterans have the option, if they're lawful permanent residents, of naturalizing under those regular civilian provisions. But there are two special statutes that provide advantages to military personnel under certain circumstances. Immigration lawyers call those statutes INA Section 328, which is popularly called the Peacetime Military Statute, statute or INA Section 329, also popularly called the Wartime Military Naturalization Statute. These two statutes differ considerably, but they do provide advantages to military personnel in the naturalization process. One of the significant advantages is that there are no fees that can be charged to a military person who is applying under one of these special statutes. That's a significant advantage for many people because, as we know, the naturalization fees are extensive. They're they're high and they keep going up. Uh, But a military person or veteran who's applying under one of the special statutes is not required to pay any filing fee or any biometrics fee. There's a big downside to these statutes, however, which is that unlike the regular civilian statutes, which provide that once somebody's naturalized, it can't be taken away, uh, the military statutes have a recent change that allows for citizenship to be taken away if the person fails to serve honorably for a period or periods of five years. 
So to repeat that, just so everybody understands, if you become a citizen under the regular civilian naturalization statutes, once you're a citizen, they can't take it away, except perhaps if you lied in order to get your citizenship. But if you're in the military or if you try to naturalize through military service and you later fail to serve honorably for five years, it is possible for the Department of Homeland Security to move to take away your citizenship, even if you didn't lie to get it in the first place. So post-naturalization behavior can, can cause a loss of citizenship for military personnel, and that's important for people to know. Now, that's a recent change to the statute, so it doesn't apply to older cases or cases where people serve before the effective date of that change. So Vietnam War era cases, for example, are not affected by that. But modern cases, it's possible and something to warn clients about. There are some other differences. Uh, in the case of INA 328, the peacetime statute, you do have to be a lawful permanent resident to file for citizenship. In the case of INA 329, the wartime statute, you do not have to have lawful permanent residence. That is, of, of course, of great significance to immigration lawyers who are not used to hearing that someone can go <clears throat> straight to U.S. citizenship without having gotten a green card or lawful permanent residence first. And again, that's only available under the wartime statute INA 329, and it does completely waive the requirement that a person have lawful permanent residence. Uh, some other differences with the civilian statutes include that continuous residency uh, is not required, physical presence in the United States is not required, uh, as I said, no fees are required, there's no time in the district or state required, and another very, very big important difference is that under both statutes, INA 328 and 329, the applicant can naturalize while in removal proceedings. That's specifically allowed by those statutes. And that, of course, is a very important thing today when many people are barred from naturalizing because they're in removal proceedings. If you're a military veteran or currently serving member of the military, you are not barred from naturalizing while in removal. Margaret, which rules are in effect right now, the peacetime or the wartime? Well, both of them are in effect, which is interesting. Uh, what The peacetime statute 328 is always in effect. There's no particular rule about when that one goes into effect. The wartime statute is only in effect when there's a presidential executive order that says that it's in effect. Uh, there's some exceptions to that. Uh, when the statute was passed many decades ago, specific conflicts were stated in it so that if you served in World War I, World War II, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, those wars were specifically listed in the statute as periods when the wartime provisions of INA 329 applied. In the modern era, however, we need an executive order covering a period in order for somebody to naturalize. And this is important to point out because today we have some people who served in the military and even served in combat in some situations who are not eligible to naturalize under INA Section 329 because there was no executive order in effect covering the period of time in which they served in the military. And that's what you have to look for as a lawyer. You have to go check a chart uh, showing the dates when various executive orders were in effect and see if your client served in the military during that time period when the executive order was in effect. If your client did serve during a time period when one of these executive orders was in effect, then your client is eligible to take advantage of the relaxed provisions of INA Section 329 and can naturalize, for example, even if he or she doesn't have a green card. Now, some people ask, well, when were these executive orders in effect? 
Uh, well, there were a number of them. There was uh, one in effect during the Grenada campaign, but it was later ruled invalid by a circuit court. So that one doesn't work. Uh, that was during a brief period in 1983. That one doesn't work anymore to naturalize anybody. But there was an executive order in effect from August 2nd, 1990 to April 11th, 1991, during the first Persian Gulf War. And then there's a the big one, which is still in effect, September 11th, 2001, until the present. Anyone who served on active duty or in a selected reserve unit is eligible to naturalize through military service, even if he or she only had one day of service on active duty or in a selected reserve unit. Uh, if you served outside those time periods, however, you have to rely on the regular civilian naturalization statutes or INA 328, which requires a green card uh, in order to allow naturalization. I should also note that um, the, there's been a lot of confusion because people don't understand what the selected reserve is. And the selected reserve, to clarify, includes any reserve unit that performs duty, basically. And that includes the National Guard. So to give you a typical example, there have been some cases involving members of the New York National Guard who were guarding the World Trade Center after 9-11 or guarding Grand Central Station or performing other duties related to 9-11. They weren't on active federal duty. They were simply performing duties for the state and ordered up on duty by the state. So they were getting pay from the state of New York and not from the federal government. But because they're members of the New York National Guard and they are considered to be members of the Selected Reserve they are eligible for military naturalization. We've had a few cases where people who never had green cards were members of the National Guard and were working uh, on duty at the World Trade Center after 9-11, and they've been able to naturalize through military service under INA Section 329. Interesting. It sounds like there's probably a few key questions that we can ask clients to uh, help determine whether they may be eligible under these special rules. Do you have some on your intake form or otherwise that you recommend for practitioners? I do. And the first big question you should ask every single client you have, regardless of their immigration status, is did you ever serve in the United States military? If they say yes, then you should further inquire what branch of the military, what kind of service, when did you serve? You should always ask for a copy of a document that people who have served in the military have. It's called a DD Form 214, and this is a form that the government issues to people who've served in the military. If they're in the National Guard, there's a National Guard Bureau Form 22 that you can ask for. So either one of those forms are very important to ask clients for, the DD 214 or the National Guard Bureau 22. Those forms will show you the dates when somebody served in the military, and from that you can then discern whether they might be eligible to naturalize through military service under INA Section 329 or whether they might be eligible under 328 if you think that's relevant. And why is it relevant to know what branch of service? Well, because there is some confusion out there. Some people don't really understand what the U.S. military is, and there have been some people who work, for example, for defense contractors who think they served in the military. Uh, we've had a few cases where people from foreign countries, say like Kuwait, worked for a contractor in Kuwait, and they think they were in the U.S. military because they wore uh, military-like clothing. Uh, but uh, some people also have served in things like uh, the Civil Air Patrol or some other type of quasi-military unit. And you need to know what um, part of the military that they served in and, and nail that down. 
And what is the process for applying for citizenship? How does it differ from a civilian application? Well, it, it it's similar in many ways, but there are a couple of significant differences. It's similar in the sense that you have to submit a package showing that you're qualified for naturalization to United States Citizenship and Immigration Services. It's a little bit different in that there's a special unit that processes military cases. It's at the Nebraska Service Center, and the special unit uh, is trained to take in cases that don't have uh, filing fees, for example, and that require special forms. There's some special forms required occasionally for military personnel. Uh, so it's similar in the sense that you're going to submit a package to the government requesting naturalization. Well, how's it different? Well, so occasionally you'll submit different forms. For example, to prove your military service, you'll need those forms that I mentioned, the DD Form 214 the, or the National Guard Bureau Form 22. If you don't have one of those, you're alternatively allowed to produce something called an N-426, which is a certification of military service. Uh, you also may be required to submit a form G325B, which is a biographic form, a special biographic form for people in the military. They've been trying to phase this form out. However, some USCIS officers are requiring the form for veterans who file for regular naturalization because they want to check their military service to see if they behave badly while they were on military duty for purposes of determining their good moral character or for purposes of determining if they're barred from citizenship because they were discharged as conscientious objectors or on grounds of alienage. So there's some special forms that are required of people who served in the military when they apply for citizenship, even if they apply under the civilian statutes. Another big difference is that military personnel now who serve in three of the military services, the Army, Air Force, and the Navy, are allowed to naturalize during their basic training. This is an initiative that was put forward uh, approximately uh, 2009 and was instituted first in the Army and then in the Navy and most recently in the Air Force, where a person who's joined the military and wants to become a citizen can show up at basic training and fill out their naturalization application at basic training. They get naturalized when they graduate from basic training. So there's an accelerated process for them to get processed through. In the Army, it takes about 10 weeks they submit their application at the beginning of basic training. They're interviewed during basic training by a special team from USCIS that's assigned to each of the basic training posts. And if all goes well and there's no issue with uh, background checks, then they will naturalize upon graduation from basic training. So this is a very, very quick process. And Homeland Security is very helpful and has these special teams posted at the bases to help individuals in the military get their citizenship. Basic training naturalization provides a lot of advantages to the individual, and it also provides a lot of advantages to the military because it means that all of the people's immigration problems are taken care of at the beginning of their service. The government doesn't have to go chasing them around the world, trying to interview them and get their fingerprints and so forth and so on while they, they might be deployed. And they don't deploy into combat as foreigners either. They deploy as full-fledged Americans, which, of course, provides significant advantages under international law to the U.S. government. Unfortunately, the Marine Corps is not yet doing basic training naturalization. And so it's important to know if you have clients who are considering the different military services and who are concerned about getting their citizenship, that you be upfront with them and tell them that they may have some trouble getting their citizenship if they join the Marine Corps, whereas the Army, Navy, and Air Force are going to be a little more friendly about letting them get their citizenship 
up front and quickly before they go have go and perform military duties in a combat zone. Do you recommend any kind of screening or consultation with an attorney before uh, an applicant goes through the basic training naturalization process? Or do you find that uh, most of the problems are screened out before the person even joins the military? Well, a lot of the problems are screened out before a person joins the military. And the reason is that uh, the military goes through an extensive background check process now before allowing people to enlist. If you're a non-citizen, they check your status with the Department of Homeland Security. They'll actually send your identifying information to DHS and confirm that you have a green card or confirm what, what your other immigration status is if you're applying under one of the programs that lets you join without a green card. Um, and they, they confirm your status, and they also run a fingerprint check and a criminal records check. Uh, so most of the significant problems have been screened out by people, uh, by the recruiting process. There are a few, however, that seem to chronically come up. And because of these particular problems, which are endemic in today's harsh enforcement environment, I do recommend that people joining the military who don't have U.S. citizenship do talk to a, a skilled lawyer before they join the military so they understand what the rules are. One of the big ones that's coming up today uh, is a false claim to U.S. citizenship, which, as most immigration lawyers know, can be a ground of inadmissibility and a ground of deportability. Interestingly, however, it is not a bar to naturalizing. It's not necessarily a bar to good, showing good moral character. Uh, but it's important that the applicant be upfront and truthful about this, and this can require expert legal advice. And I'll just give you one example. We had an individual join the Army who is eligible for naturalization, but in the course of going over his application at basic training, he became concerned because one of the questions on the application was whether he had ever claimed to be a U.S. citizen. And he had uh, applied for a student loan at one point in his life and uh, checked the box saying that he was a U.S. citizen. So he did not naturalize at basic training. He was concerned about this. He went and got expert help from a lawyer. The lawyer recommended that he, of course, answer the question truthfully instead of committing uh, perjury by lying on the form. So he answered the question truthfully. He gave a full affidavit explaining the circumstances. Uh, the lawyer did a brief explaining to U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services that claiming to be a U.S. citizen on a student loan application was not a bar to naturalizing. The lawyer also explained that he was naturalizing through military service, so even if they did want to try to throw him into removal proceedings, he could still naturalize. And the lawyer got a lot of evidence together to show that under the totality of the circumstances, this soldier had good moral character, even though he had made this mistake on his student loan application. The lawyer also made sure that the individual paid off all the student loans before he applied. And he was successful in naturalizing through military service. The government understood the legal arguments and, and naturalized the individual. Under circumstances like that, however, I think it would be difficult for a person to naturalize on his own. He might be tempted to uh, tell, give, provide false information on the N-400, which is always a very, very bad idea in a criminal act. Uh, he might have been unable to make the required legal arguments during the stress of basic training. So I think the fact that this individual went and got an expert help from a lawyer was extremely helpful. And cases like that uh, are very common today. We have a lot of cases where people have signed up to vote or made a claim to citizenship on some form, mortgage forms or student loan forms or um, Department of Motor Vehicle forms. Uh, and, of course, immigration lawyers provide an invaluable service in explaining the law to people and making sure that they don't get themselves in deeper water by 
putting false information on forms. Mm. Do you have any uh, tips for working with clients in the military? I imagine it's challenging if they move around a lot and that there may be particular problems such as the ones you've identified to watch for. Yes. Sure. There there are a number of challenges. One of the first big challenges is understanding the language of people in the military. They have their own acronyms. They have their own ways of speaking. There's things that if you haven't served in the military yourself, you might not understand, for example, what a court-martial means or what an Article 15 or captain's mast is. These are types of uh, non-judicial punishment that people in the military undergo that might affect their application for citizenship. Um, first, you need to understand the lingo, so ask the clients if you know you don't understand some acronym that they're using or you're not sure what they mean. Uh, that, that can be a challenge. Uh, tracking them down can be a challenge. Uh, however, most people in the military today, regardless of where they're at, do have access to email. So the military has email accounts for everybody in the military, and even when they're deployed overseas, they usually have a chance to go check their email every so often if they're not in an extremely remote situation. Uh, but tracking them down can be a problem. You may run into challenges if they're required to show up for an interview and they're deployed. Luckily, U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services is generally very military-friendly, and they will often waive interviews. Um, they can't waive, of course, a naturalization interview, but they might waive an interview for an adjustment applicant whose spouse is deployed. Sometimes they will do telephonic interviews or contact the individual by email, uh, but there are issues uh, that would come up that I think most people can predict of people moving around a lot, being hard to get a hold of, and that, and that sort of thing. Uh, so those are things that people should be aware of. Another thing that you should be aware of when dealing with military people who are naturalizing is that Congress has set a six-month time limit on when Homeland Security has to make a decision on a naturalization case. And so that often spurs the agency to try to find people and track them down. That's a relatively recent change to the law where Congress mandated statutorily that they have to make a decision on a naturalization case or provide an explanation of why the case can't be decided within six months after it gets filed. And what about military service as a path to citizenship? That's a very good question and one that I get asked repeatedly. One of the reasons I get asked this question is because there have been a number of prominent politicians including Senator Jeff Sessions and some other senators and members of the House of Representatives who have suggested that people who are undocumented could get citizenship through military service. Uh, this suggestion I find a little bit uh, appalling because, in fact, it's um, not lawful for an undocumented immigrant to join the military. There have been a few cases of undocumented immigrants enlisting in the military, but those cases have involved false documentation or uh, mistaken enlistments, where, for example, somebody had some sort of temporary work permit and they were mistakenly allowed to enlist. So it's not the case that an undocumented immigrant is allowed to join the military today, and the only ones who've gotten in have done so essentially by committing crimes. Uh, it's a little bit appalling to me that members of Congress would suggest that people have a path to citizenship if they go commit the crime of trying to fraudulently enlist in the military, but that seems to be what some people have suggested. Um, in fact, today, the military checks carefully the immigration status of anybody who states that he or she is a non-citizen. And if somebody is discovered to be uh, a fraudulent enlistment case where they entered the military without having a green card or without having whatever immigration status was required for enlistment, 
They can be court-martialed. They can be discharged. They can be charged with a crime under federal law. Uh, so it's definitely not a good idea for undocumented people to try to join the military. They can be deported. Uh, they can have all kinds of bad things happen to them. That said, however, there have been a couple of prominent cases in the news where somebody has joined the military who has been undocumented and the person managed to serve for a long period of time, had honorable service, and was allowed to naturalize through military service under Immigration and Nationality Section 329, which allows people to naturalize if they've served honorably, even if they don't have a green card. The trick there, of course, is they have to serve honorably during wartime, and they have to serve honorably. So they have to prove that their military service has been honorable. If they've been court-martialed for a fraudulent enlistment, they're not going to be able to show honorable service. Also, the military often discharges these people with something called an entry-level discharge and an uncharacterized type of service, meaning that they can't naturalize through military service at all because they can't show that they served honorably. So uh, when you ask the question, what about military service as a path to citizenship? Well, realistically, it is not a path to citizenship that a lawyer could ethically recommend to anyone. Uh, it's only a path to citizenship for people who are willing to break the law by lying to the military about their status. And that's not a course of action that any lawyer would ever recommend to a client, any ethical lawyer would ever recommend to a client. Uh, if, on the other hand, you do run into somebody who's already served in the military, they already did the bad deed years and years ago, you do want to talk to an expert because in some cases, people have been able to naturalize through military service, even though years ago, they provided false documents to the military. Uh, those cases are complicated, and it's best to talk to an expert before handling one of those cases. I've seen them come out badly, and I've also seen a few that have come out well where the person has been able to naturalize because they've been able to show such stellar behavior while they served in the military. And they also have to show that they served in the military for a long time, typically that they served in combat, that sort of thing, to overcome uh, the uh, failure of good moral character that they show by committing a bad act in order to get into the military. Uh, so again, those cases are complicated, and they want to, and people should talk to uh, an expert if they run into those cases. You should never, ever, however, advise a client that a path from undocumented to citizenship is through military service. The only uh, statutory provision that would allow for that is the DREAM Act, which has not yet become law. If the DREAM Act does become law, then people would be permitted to get green cards, albeit temporary green cards, and would be able to enlist in the military as legal documented people. Um, and they would then get their citizenship through military service eventually. But they're not going into the military as undocumented immigrants. Uh, the military has no legal authority at the moment to enlist people who are undocumented. Uh, in fact, a Social Security number, a valid one, is required for enlistment. And again, the military does check everyone's immigration status with the Department of Homeland Security if the people say that they're non-citizens. This is a lot of information. Do you have other resources that you would point us to or upcoming trainings in case someone wants to find out more about this? Yes. I'm doing a training in New York City with the New York Immigration Coalition on March 21st, 2012. It's a three-hour training on all issues related to military service and immigration. It includes information related to family members of military personnel, which is another complicated issue. And I also have a book coming out, as you mentioned, with the American Immigration Lawyers Association. Uh, it'll be published in March on immigration issues related to military service. 
in the interim, I've, I've published a number of articles as well, and I'm happy to provide them to people who want to send me an email and uh, ask for the information about the articles so that they can get a copy. All right. And I would also like to point people to resources in our library at www.immigrationadvocates.org. If you go to the library, click on Naturalization and Citizenship, then click on Special Naturalization Rules, where you'll see we have a section entitled Naturalization of People Serving in the U.S. Military. Is there anything else to add today, Margaret? Well, I did want to add one thing that I skipped over originally. I meant to mention that good moral character is required for naturalization of most people, and most people have to show five years of good moral character in order to naturalize. Military personnel have to show one year of good moral character. Uh, it's also important to note that military personnel are barred from naturalizing if they have committed an aggravated felony, and that's because they are subject to the same statutory bars to naturalization that apply to regular civilians who are applying for citizenship. So it doesn't help somebody who has committed an aggravated felony to join the military. They will still be barred from getting citizenship through military service. Good to know. Thank you so much, Margaret, and thank you to your law firm, Lane and Powell, for allowing you to join us, and thank you as well to the University of Alaska. We appreciate your time with us today discussing naturalization for clients in military service as part of the Immigration Advocates Network podcast series on special issues in naturalization and citizenship. Take care.